Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Come a little bit closer together. <laughs> How close do you want it, Michael? Close. Looking <laughs> behind you. It's the theme of the evening. There's wall space here if you need wall space. I'm sorry to disturb your real estate <laughs> commitments. <laughs> so, speaking of appreciation, it is so nice for me to be here. <laughs> um, you know, quite a few of you I feel like we've known each other for quite a few years now, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, so it's really nice for me to come back and see faces and hear about where you're at and so on. Um, you know, in, in Toronto, we have a place called Center of Gravity, mm-hmm. and um, it's not a yoga studio. And it's not a temple, and it's not an ashram, mm. it's nothing. And um, it has a name. And basically, it's um, a community of people who practice together. And um, we offer drop-in classes and workshops. Um, we have a lot of continuing education programs for uh, people who do clinical work, nurses, palliative care workers, doctors, psychiatrists, mm-hmm. um, and strong ties to the academic community. And um, because I feel it's really important to dissolve the categories of inner and outer, mm-hmm. personal, cultural, mm-hmm. enlightenment being some internal work, <laughs> that has nothing to do with social action. Mm. And so part of the purpose of what we do is to uh, practice together and study together in a way that promotes intelligent thinking, mm. that promotes doubt, 
And that promotes deep commitment all at once. So that we can think more about a culture of awakening rather than just my personal awakening. And that we see that what we're doing on the yoga mat, what you're doing on the cushion, is a kind of social action. So to not create these false categories that give us the sense that there are false categories. In other words, if I say that what happens here is my yoga practice, but what happens here is my daily life, then that's how it's going to feel. But that was just an artificial designation that I created. What's happening here is daily life. You can't roll up your yoga mat. (laughs) When you leave here, your practice doesn't end, and then you come back tomorrow and it starts again. Unless you say that when you leave here, your practice ends, and when you come tomorrow, it starts up again. What are you committed to? So I'm going to read this Thomas Merton quote one more time. And then, um, what good company? We have Rama and Thomas Merton tonight. And you think they're far away, but like when you inhale, there are molecules there that Thomas Merton inhales. (laughs) And Rachel Carson. And Patanjali. And Basha. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas Merton. The beginning of love. It's just the beginning. Hmm. The beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves. And to not twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. You can't love a tree because it fits your image of a tree. You love a tree for the sake of the tree. And that's the difference between ecology and environmentalism. We're not protecting the forest because it's nice to have a good forest on the other side of the bridge. Mm. We're protecting the forest because it has an equal right to live that you do. See? And if you think that you're more important than the bird... (laughs) How can you litter? How can you throw something into the water? So now I'll open it up to you. Is there anything that I've said that needs clarification or that you want to 
engage or um, I hope I've debunked a few of your favorite ideas go ahead we have all night (laughs) what are you committed to Fundamental, and I think this came out in teacher training, or if it's taught to have anyway, that one of the fundamental elements of any practice is restraint. <laughs> and um, yet, we also talk about yoga mat creating a boundary, <laughs> and you're also saying we can't roll it up. <laughs> so it seems like we can need to create limits of some sort for restraint in order mm-hmm. to practice. Um, and yet those then have an impact and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going way back um, <clears throat> and there was uh, I don't know back I guess but I think uh, Osho who was regarded mm-hmm. as, as someone relatively awake mm-hmm. um, sort of put forward a thought that said no no the more you restrain mm-hmm. the more you're going to create um, yeah. resistance or you're going to create something that's going to have to come out later yeah and, uh, and so, in that sense, a lot of his view was you get rid of the restraints, right? You just you just you you express those things until they're exhausted. Right? Yes. And then you're able, in yeah. some fashion, to pick up and clarify your mm-hmm. practice uh, through that method. Yes. And they don't seem to make sense. Mm. They don't seem to be <laughs> somewhat. Uh, not that we have any opposites, mm-hmm. but they're not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they seem to be a little bit, uh, you know, contradictory. Or yeah. Or something. Yeah. And, and I guess there are views again too that say get rid of all the restraints. Right? Those, those those sound good. Some mm-hmm. of them sound just do whatever you need to do. Yeah. And that's a good spiritual path. That's a good spiritual practice. And, yeah. You know, I like those thoughts. They sound yes. good. But <laughs> and the straight ones sound more like discipline and hard work. Yeah. And yet we're, you know, we're 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 creating those different yeah. conditions. And, and, and maybe that, that's mm-hmm. all, that's sort of a yeah. thing that popped up. Well, you know, the, the first limb of yoga, of Ashtanga yoga, is yama, which means restraint. Um, and the eighth limb of yoga is samadhi, which means integration. The complete integration of subject and object, which is what we've been calling intimacy. Well, a lot of people think that the eight limbs are like the Eiffel Tower. Mm. You have like four foundations. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama. And then the other ones are like higher, the four levels of the Eiffel Tower. Mm. And I think this is wrong. Mm. I don't think the eight limbs are like a ladder. Mm. I think they're like a circle. Mm. Because at one point in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says... Samadhi is not the goal of yoga. So they're a circle. And the eighth limb bends into the yamas. So there's two ways to look at this. The dualistic way is like, if I practice the eight limbs in sequence, then it's heading towards samadhi. 
And you can understand this. Look at the yamas. I mean, you really try and practice non-violence, not, not having the intention to cause harm in body, speech, and mind. You practice honesty. You practice not stealing. And it tunes you into the effect of your actions in the web of life. If you're stealing, Gandhi's translation of stealing is multiplying your wants. If you keep multiplying your wants, it has adverse effects in the web, economically, socially, etc. And it tunes you in to samadhi. You see? So you could say the restraints help us interrupt the momentum of our habits, which is something totally foreign to materialistic culture. I mean, isn't it interesting that postmodern philosophy has no idea what to do with values and ethics, except to say they're all relative. Western psychology has nothing to say about ethics. If you train as a therapist, you need to not sleep with your clients and so so on. But you never have a supervisor who asks you about your ethics. You never have to restrain yourself. That's something people do in other countries. If you don't have enough electricity, you just buy it from Quebec. (laughs) You don't restrain yourself. But to flip it around, you can also say that the expression of samadhi is the yamas, is restraint. So that ethics are an expression of intimacy because I feel deeply how we're interconnected. You know, the Dalai Lama, when he talks about politics with the Chinese, he feels every blow on every Tibetan's head. And he's so jolly. And he feels every abuse. And he's joyful. It's amazing. And people say, you're a spiritual teacher and a political leader at the same time. We haven't seen that in so long. And he says, I'm not a spiritual teacher and a political leader. Why are you creating those categories? (laughs) You see? I'm just talking about compassion. (laughs) There's the famous story where someone says to him, what's your religion? And he says, compassion. So, from the perspective of samadhi, if I feel how we're interconnected, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to have the intention to cause harm. But somebody who has a meditative experience of samadhi, their awakening is not complete. If you experience samadhi in your little village in northern India, and then you come to Ottawa, we may not treat women the same. And so some teachers take this line that 
well, this level of samadhi is outside of karma. And I can kind of, you know, I'm not operating in the same level of ethics. Mm. And a lot of us have seen communities that have really been hurt by that kind of philosophy, which I don't support. Maybe my enlightenment is not there yet. But I don't know if it has to be. When you get off your meditation cushion after you have the experience experiences of samadhi, you have to go pee. <laughs> and you have to flush good drinking water into the lake, into the river. You know, I was just in Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, they're asking children to not drink the water in the city. Because all the Prozac and Viagra and antidepressants and anti-anxiety pills and antibiotics uh, can't be treated by the water filtration plants. They They don't have any way to treat it. So it just goes and it's playing with the hormones of young people because it just goes in new form straight back because it's water you see that's samadhi and the yamas so the yamas bend back into samadhi and I think that um, a practice that does not include ethics is really appealing it's really appealing but remember The yamas are not like rules because there's no God, Santa Claus, that's going to come and change your present or not drop something down the chimney at the moment of death. Instead of having an all-knowing God that's going to put you in heaven or hell, yoga has karma. That your actions leave a trace. What kind of actions are you going to take? I mean, I see this a lot in psychotherapy, you know. Someone told me an interesting statistic that in the United States, long-term psychotherapy is coming more than once. (laughs) That's how the curve is with how many people quit after one time. So the statistics show that so many people go to see a therapist once and don't go back. <laughs> and you could say, well, maybe they're bad therapists. I don't know. Who knows? But maybe it's a bad model or whatever. It's more. But we can. We also know that a lot of people have trouble in their lives and they don't want to change. Why? Because you don't get the karma piece yet. Until you understand karma, nothing's going to change. Ethics make no sense without karma. Until you see that your unconsciousness is hurting people around you. That when you're on your Blackberry talking, you don't see the lake. And you don't see the person with whom you're communicating. 
And so until you're really good at asana and you get a few more limbs, leave the multitasking a bit. Restraint. So that so to start to see how ethics or to start to see how psychological change, spirituality and ethics are inseparable. And then you see that the yamas are not commandments like good, bad. They're suggestions for how to live wisely. And you can't break them. You had your hand up? Going back to the question of commitment, mm-hmm. um, I struggle with being committed to something but not judging other people who are not committed to it. Um, mm-hmm. and for me, my personal passion is the environment and trying mm-hmm. to make people more aware of environmental issues. Yeah. And um, I, I thought if you could speak a bit to how you can be committed to something and, and try and foster change but not sort of involve judgment in that. Mm-hmm. Um, well I think you have to be unpopular (laughs) and you have to make sure that whatever action you're taking you don't have the intention to cause harm Gandhi says that if you are involved in a political movement where because you're angry it slips into wanting to cause harm then your new government will cause just as much violence as the government that you were trying to overthrow and we see this in South America we see this in Cuba we see this in France right now I mean I just spent some time in Paris and in Paris I mean it's a beautiful it's it's wonderful to be in Paris but there's a huge shadow And there's a massive population in Paris that are not being given citizenship and are not being treated like citizens because of the ideal of what a Parisian citizen looks like and how they behave. And right, you see these riots starting like a couple times a year and they're getting more and more violent. So that anxiety that a group feels when they're oppressed is really healthy. Your anxiety is really good. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Whoops. Thank the, <laughs> Thank God that Gandhi didn't have antidepressants. That Mother Teresa did not have anti-anxiety medication so quickly. Because her anxiety was accurate. Your symptoms are often very accurate. And it's not enough to practice letting go. You have to practice taking action. So what are you committed to? What kind of action are you going to take? Because your actions matter. Dante says, a person... Oh, a, a place is reserved in hell for those who remain passive in times of crisis. <laughs> Look around. You have to take action. And so the line 
for yoga is that that action cannot have the intention to cause harm. And that's a fine line. When you hang off, you know, the end of a coal barge that's trying to deliver coal to bring awareness to the fact that Dalton McGinty said he was going to shut down the coal plants. Mm. So how can your action be set up in a way where your intention is to not cause harm? It's the intention that's really crucial. Because whatever you do, it's going to cause harm somewhere. (laughs) Even if it puts your life at risk. I mean, the teachings often say, like, don't ever fight over the teachings. And you should never put your life at risk over the teachings. But if supporting um, an action that promotes the qualities of compassion, etc., etc., then you can put your life at risk. Like to save someone else's life but not to put your life at risk over teachings. <laughs> it's an interesting... Uh, it's application. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. Cause I was telling David around the time you were talking about the ahimsa mm-hmm. and yoga teacher training, the movie Daddy was happening. Oh, yeah. And so I watched it again. So, but there's a part of me that was saying he was being violent for his Self, yeah. but to me, well, he's practicing ahimsa there, trying to get a veil to be yeah. not violent. I felt that he's being violent towards himself, but I think he's mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. is that not violent? Like he did towards himself? Yeah. You have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Someone asked him. Yeah. When he was on in the salt march, mm. a reporter came up to him and said. This isn't in the movie. A reporter came up to him and said, Who are you doing this for? That's like me saying to you, Oh, this is one of our homework assignments, actually. Who are you practicing for? Who are you practicing for? And do you know what Gandhi said? Me. I'm just trying to figure out how to live. What does Walt Whitman say? When I feel complete. You know this for those of you who have a practice. Like you sit and you watch your breath for five minutes. And afterwards, five minutes. And afterwards... Whatever problem was so heavy is just a little bit less large. (laughs) And that literally transfigures the world you're perceiving. Anybody else? Especially like if someone has a question, they're like kind of shy, and it just seems so stupid because it's so basic. 
that's, those are the best questions. Because <laughs> they're the ones everyone wants to ask. <laughs> or comment. Well, I do wonder how to meditate with my eyes open because we had meditation in and I felt like I had waited so much out of it in your ears. No. I know this isn't really part of the theme well, talk about Gazing. <laughs> gazing and looking are not the same thing. So you practice gazing. The eyes are not used to gazing. Looking is when we go after things. And gazing is when we just receive so through the eyes. So soft. So soft. Because I'm not used to gazing. Is that why? Might be one of them. I'd have to see your posture. Yeah. Don't close your eyes. <clears throat> Don't go anywhere. A closed eyes is really helpful for visualization. But that's about it. I mean, when you close your eyes when you practice meditation, your eyes move all over the place. It's hard to get really still. Just like when you're sleeping, if you see a car go by, your eyes go. So if you start your meditation practice, your eyes close. Some point you can kind of start all over with emotions. <laughs> if I'm around, I'll give you a hard time. There are some exceptions. Mm-hmm. When you talk about... Um, meditation and the gaze yeah and you mentioned that when you close your eyes you're going in time can be when you're gazing are you not going outside uh when you sit and you look at a point if you're looking there's a point there if you're gazing there's nothing there the eyes are just set so they're still and after about three minutes there's no object there. The eyes are just still and you're not even aware of what you're looking at. Unless you're looking, looking. <laughs> but that's, that's not what I mean. What I'm trying to get at is you have this concept of going inside and, and, and you mentioned something about going outside. So, where, where, is that, where is the balance? There's no balance, because there was no inner and outer to begin with. The eyes are set on a point, and when you sit with the eyes open, after a few minutes, you're not even aware of what you're looking at. The eyes are, st- this is called pratyahara, which is where, which can be translated as counter-grabbing, that the eyes are no longer grabbing something, and they're just settled. And so the sense organ uncouples from the sense object. The eye and the floor are no longer. And then there's just gazing and your peripheral vision increases and you're not interested in anything. Don't take my word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I struggle with the idea that there's one correct way to meditate. There, there is not one correct way. There's many, many different ways. Um, But we can't like go teach everybody every way because then we'll have a bunch of 
eclectics and nobody paying attention. So what we're saying is, here's one method, pay attention, work with it. You guys are here because you probably practice at this studio. The studio has practices that are in a particular lineage. Go into them. Go deep. And whatever part of practice you really like that's appealing to you right now, like really go for it. Go deep. Don't drift. That's why I say, like, when I'm talking, if you just listen with your intellect, it's like you're learning a bit more philosophy or something. But if you listen with your heart, there might be a few little seeds there that have some meaning so that when you leave tonight, you'll be able to take different kind of action. So that you go through this holiday season and you come out on January 1st with energy not being freaked out by your family and what they served at dinner time because you're a yogi and you don't eat that with so much butter. I love that scene in the film The Ice Storm where it's Thanksgiving and they all go to say grace and the son says, you know, thank you for the turkey who's given its life for us to be here. Do you know this? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful scene of nonviolence and the parents just flip up. <laughs> <laughs> our son our 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 son really loves his Michelle's father I shouldn't tell you all this, but and um, he's really into jazz, and uh, so our our son really loves jazz. And so uh, a few nights ago, we were uh, saying grace, uh-huh. and um, so he always gets to say grace. He can say whatever he wants. So he said, "I just want to thank jazz because <laughs> jazz brought us all this food, and jazz brought us everything." One more, one more comment. There's not one way to do meditation. I'm just saying, this is the way that I practice. It gives a lot, it offers a lot of benefits. And um, I was only bringing up this one technique 
just to demonstrate some of the ways where a meditation practice sometimes can reinforce the division between inner and outer. And that's my experience. And because I think it works, that's what I teach. Um, and that's what I share with other people. But that doesn't mean that it's the best <laughs> or it's the only one at all. I actually think it's really awful most of the time. But I think it's quite beneficial, and so that's the way I teach, because I think that one of the techniques of meditation that's most helpful for our culture right now is to be here and to stop trying to get somewhere and to be here with your eyes and with your ears and with your skin and with your body and to know this practice with your liver and to know this practice in your gallbladder not in your philosophical awareness and that's what we're going to work on in the teacher trainings weekend is the koshas and how to start to explore yoga postures not just in terms of physical geometry, but also in terms of the other sheaths of what's going on in yoga postures, like where to put your mind. Where do you put your mind? I mean, I can do third series and be thinking about dinner. (laughs) Or thinking about how stiff I am, or how spiritual I am. How advanced I am. Because I don't have to do like she's still on second series. So now I'm on third series. And I'm going to get authorized. Come on. Does that mean the person who's in a wheelchair can't become enlightened? Because they're not flexible enough that they can do fourth series? That's ridiculous. So then what is it about the yoga posture that wakes you up? Mm-hmm. It's not just getting the next series. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm off the hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just... Oh, good. <laughs> Back to that yin class. <laughs> And then you get to the in class, it's like, oh, now I have to put my mind somewhere. Okay, back to Mysore. <laughs> now I'm just going to run through the practice again, because then I don't have to like put my mind somewhere. Avoiding intimacy. It's what you most don't want. Because it would have to mean giving up. Renunciation. Yeah. And then when you feel intimacy, when you start waking up, for one person that's going to mean you go lock yourself to that tree and don't you dare let them cut it down. And for another person it's going to mean paint. Paint. Put your life into it. And for another person it's going to mean Go serve food to people who don't have food. Because I'll tell you a little secret. 
and this is not advice, it's just a little secret, which is that people are most happy when they're helping other people. <laughs> but don't tell anybody, because it would <laughs> screw up the economy. <laughs> so, thank you very much for coming. Yeah. And um, I'm going to give you some homework. Is that okay? Give me some homework. I'm going to interpret the theme of commitment and uh, rethinking generosity. And because it's Christmas time, holiday time, Hanukkah time, New Year's, um, protect yourself. You have hungry ghosts in all the windows that are insatiable. You couldn't give them enough money. They're not going to say, stop. They're going to say, more. And you have family members who are going to say, more. You don't spend enough time here. And you have internal family members saying, not enough, you're not enough, not enough. So protect yourself. So when you go to your family party, you're not all distracted and freaked out because you can't take good action. On January 1st, don't be burnt out. How can you practice Just like gathering everything into the pelvic floor, how can you pull your practice now into yourself so that you're contained, so that you can offer wisdom and compassion for the next few weeks and not show up on January 1st like in a nervous breakdown because you couldn't meet all of the expectations of Hallmark and whatever the thing is that you're desiring now. So here are two methods. Number one, protect yourself. That's the beginning of commitment. And number two, you have to let go of something. So whatever the thing that you're most desiring in your life right now, Whatever you want to buy this week, mm-hmm. and not like what I want to buy, but what I need to buy <laughs> this week, like, don't. Let it go. You don't need it. And you know what I'm talking about. Don't be philosophical and say, well, I have certain needs in my life that I really need to. Like that thing that you're contracting around now, one of the ways you can protect yourself is by just exhaling. Good luck. (laughs) I can't wait to hear about it. So, namaste. Michael, your assignment's due in April when you can <laughs> <laughs> no marketing credit and uh, um, <laughs>
the um, the one thing that uh, I didn't mention, or uh, I don't, if I did, I completely let go of it. But um, Michael has a book. I, I believe the title ends up being Inner Tradition of Yoga, mm-hmm. and uh, it's being published by Shambhala. It was going to come out in June, but I understand from our discussions that we'll it be comes out in June, but it's in stores in August. Stores in August. Okay, so um, and you begin to see. And you're very fortunate to see, you know, where the inner tradition, where the title comes from, and we're beginning to get a sense, as Michael comes more and more, that uh, this yoga that we practice in the outer form, really it, it, it emanates from the inner, wherever that comes from, whether it was eyes closed or eyes open. <laughs> and we're very happy that our eyes have been open, that you've come here tonight, Michael, and I know we're looking forward to the... The, uh, the rest of the weekend with the, the, the teacher trainees and so uh, thank, thank you. you so much thank you. again and uh, to be continued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.